and welcome to 15 Minutes in Washington, D.C. I'm Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth U.S. Asia Centre. Joining me today is my friend, Ken Gleiman. Ken served in the U.S. Army for the best part of three decades, first as a Special Forces officer and then as an Army strategist. Ken was also the director of U.S. Indo-PACOM Commanders Action Group based in Honolulu, and he's also worked in the office of the U.S. Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. In addition to that, he's also been an adjunct assistant professor with Georgetown University, and now he's starting the next exciting chapter of his career with Inspirata Consulting. And in this role, Ken helps tackle U.S. national strategic challenges, and he's also been looking at some of the academic contributions that people can make to the new AUKUS agreement. So Ken, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Haley. So Ken, I know you because we were colleagues together at ASPE in Canberra, and I always knew you came from a special forces background. But you know what? I think of special forces, I always think of a montage in movies where I see you doing all this training to be like the strongest and the best that you could possibly be. But I actually have no concept of what it's actually like to be a special forces officer. Um, you undertook that role within Okinawa. Obviously, Japan is a key partner and ally of the United States and Australia. But for people thinking about a career in the special forces, can you give us a sense of what it's like actually being being one. Yeah, sure. I mean, as best I can in, uh, in a short period of time. The U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, often referred to as the Green Berets, uh, that is one branch of or one part of the greater U.S. Uh, military Special Operations Command. And so in the Army, um, the Army has uh, five Special Forces groups, each regionally oriented um, to a, an area of the globe. And so um, sometimes when people think of Army Special Forces or Green Berets, they sort of mix it all together with all the rest of special operations. Like Marines. Movies, yeah. uh, Marines, Rangers, uh, Navy SEALs, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's a lot more intricate than that, and every, uh, every um, element in special operations sort of has its roles and its specialties with some, a great deal of overlap. But uh, the Army Special Forces really is focused on uh, what we call unconventional warfare. And so a lot of it is about uh, by, with, and through foreign partners. Now, that can be the militaries or uh, paramilitary forces of a state, uh, or those can be non-state, uh, in, in uh, special circumstances, non-state uh, actors, or even now what's more important, certainly way more important now than it was back when uh, I was in the Special Forces, is uh, enabling national resistance and resilience movements. Um, but for me, when I was in the Special Forces, uh, it was very much about working with our Indo-Pacific partners. Now, um, our small part of Army Special Forces was uh, the first Special Forces group, which focused on the Indo-Pacific and Asia. And then we had one battalion, uh, you know, about one third of that force, was uh, located in Okinawa, Japan, forward. And back in the 90s, that was uh, the place to be, mm. right? Because you were <laughs> forward, you were in theater, you were traveling to different countries, working with 
every one of our partners in Asia, so not just Japan, uh, actually, uh, with Australia, with Indonesia, with Thailand. So is this working with their special forces as well or working across their whole military? Across their whole whole military, but really trying to focus on where we can make uh, the biggest impact and, of course, what that that country needed. I happen to do a lot of work with the counterterrorism forces of those uh, countries. So by the time I left Okinawa after my second tour, I was able to say that I had actually worked worked with and uh, met and operated with just about every uh, counterterrorism-focused unit of, of those countries, from uh, Japan to Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, etc. Hmm. So um, it's a very interesting organization, lots of travel, lots of time with foreign forces, um, and, uh, and lots of what you know, we, we, we still call foreign internal defense or security force assistance um, hmm. uh, training. What did you find as someone deployed to the region away from home? I mean, I guess it's something you expect joining the special forces that that's what's going to happen to you. But um, for people considering following a career in that in that space, what do they know? What do they need to know before they actually get deployed, go somewhere where they're unfamiliar with, where they're working with a lot of foreign militaries? Is there advice that you would offer those people? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, so, you know, it depends on the age and, and whatnot. But when I do talk to younger uh, people who are interested in it, I, I try to make very sure that they understand the differences in the various types of special operations forces. And if they're very interested in, they say, I want to be in the Army Special Forces or Green Beret, then you really have to ask them, you know, if they have that sort of uh, cultural awareness, mm-hmm. that actual curiosity, that ability to relate to people who are very different than you, that have very different, uh, uh, perhaps a very different culture, mm-hmm. it also helps a great deal if they um, are willing, able, and have that uh, innate ability and interest to learn a foreign language. Um, that that type of person is very important. And then, of course, there's all the 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 fitness aspects of it, et cetera. The montage bit the that montage I told you. Bit. But, but, but I will say that the selection now for uh, Army Special Forces is very, um, for lack of a better term, scientific. I mean, there was sort of years of heuristic in the selection process and what type of person they were looking for. But over the last 20 years, they have become very scientific about it personality types, strength finder, et cetera. And they really do look for that person that can relate to uh, a group that is comfortable um, with a lot of ambiguity and that isn't necessarily the best person to kick down the door or the, uh, you know, or mm. the person that uh, might be portrayed in some uh, Hollywood special operations type, uh, type movies. It really does take somebody who's a little bit uh, more calm, perhaps a bit more cerebral, but also a person of action who can work really well with a team, with a diverse team. Hmm. Ken, the next question I have is kind of to pivot to talk about the time you spent at Indo-PACOM in Honolulu. Um, People listening might not really know much about what U.S. Pacific Command is or what other U.S. commands around the world do and how they operate. Um, Can you explain basically what Indo-Pacific Command does? Yeah, sure. Uh, Absolutely. So uh, the the United States has uh, military forces all over the globe and has uh, multiple partners uh, and alliances uh, all over the globe. And so we have, over time, developed the um, the um, unified command plan, if you will. And so it gives operational command or co- combatant commands actual control over forces 
uh, around the world, we, we still call these geographic combatant commands. There are other things called functional combatant commands, but Indo-PACOM is one of the five uh, geographic um, combatant commands, and that means that there is a single joint commander, uh, and he has a headquarters in uh, in uh, Honolulu, which isn't bad uh, place to be. <laughs> but uh, but he commands the forces in the Indo-Pacific. Now, when I was there, it was actually called Pacific Command, mm. and uh, my, my my boss um, and and mentor and just a fantastic human being, Harry Harris. He said, you know what, I think we really do need to shift this and call it Indo-Pacific Command, Indo-PACOM, because so much of the area that I'm supposed to be responsible for U.S. forces and, and U.S. security cooperation activities there is also the Indian Ocean. It's also India, our major partner, and we really are having this recognition back then that we can't just call it the Pacific. It is the Indo-Pacific. You know, it is more than 50% of the world's population lives there, you know, uh, greater than 50% of the global GDP comes from there. And to just call it the Pacific makes it seem like it's just a big Navy area, a big, this big ocean, when really it is a complex, dynamic, and just an incredible place where the security interests of the United States and its allies are important and becoming more and more important every year. Mm. And so um, and so back to what Indo-PACOM does. Well, Indo-PACOM is responsible for all of that of the security interests of the United States in that uh, area and the Indo-PACOM commander has uh, um, has uh, the command or operational control of all US forces that are in that area or assigned to that area. It sounds like a very big job considering the geographical scope, um, and I'm biased, but I think it'd be the most important command that the U.S. has, or increasingly important. Well, I think the U.S. would agree with you. I mean, I think that, uh, especially while I was there, that was, there was that recognition that this is more and more important. So when I was there in the late Obama administration, remember the Pacific pivot? Um, and, uh, and, and that sort of aspect of policy, but now you'll see it very clearly in the strategies, in in the, whether it be the national security strategy on down to to other strategies, that this is you know the most important region for uh, for U.S. and global interests. Mm-hmm. And Ken, I wanted to give people a sense of, you know, if they actually became an advisor to a senior U.S. or in their case, you know, Australian or any country, senior military uh, official, what is the day-to-day like? Do you have really long hours? Is it a high-stress environment? I mean, for the time that you were at Indo-PACOM, I'm sure you would have seen a lot of activity, whether that's piracy or illegal activities, but there was no war. Um, So what are you actually doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, um, so uh, it's a fascinating, dynamic, and busy place because even though there's no conflict, there are a lot of activities uh, and a lot of important things going on. Um, as far as working in that en- environment, I mean, the uh, Indo-Pacific commander, the Indo-PACOM commander has a, uh, a large staff of uh, senior general officers that advise him. He has, um, he has a foreign policy advisor. There's lots of people advising uh, that commander and lots of people doing really important work, whether it's in uh, the intelligence side of the house, operations, planning, logistics. And so a lot of, uh, a number of things are going on to maintain and to do those activities. Uh, also in preparation for um, uh, for potential conflicts, so contingencies are a huge part of it, and planning, etc. Working actually in the 
commander's office with the commander running, uh, you know, r- running his action group is a uh, is a very interesting um, and challenging job. Um, one of the first things that struck me when I was there is just how important a senior leader, especially someone like uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, commander, how important and limited his time is. And so I worked with some of the best people. And even though I was the director, there were I was surrounded by a team of people who were way more experienced than I was. Than I was and, uh, and was very thankful for their mentorship, even though I was the director. I, my job was a bit of... Uh, a bit of uh, traffic cop or uh, synchronizer, but I was surrounded by experts like uh, uh, Dr. Rich Berry or um, or uh, Eric Sayers worked with us for for a time, and uh, they these folks are real experts in the area. So one of the things that I learned about working around a senior leader is um, the necessity of engaging with precision and hmm. any amount Could of time use that, that time. you have. Yeah, yeah it, it, it becomes so important and it became almost a mantra of ours because the worst thing we could do is, uh, is walk in Admiral Harris's office when he was incredibly busy. He needed to be briefed on something. He needed uh, some time to think about it and then suddenly have it go off track because somebody wasn't prepared or because um, you know we didn't think through our uh, our. our our message to him. We didn't bring in all of the information that he might need. Mm. Um, so uh, we got good at it, and uh, <laughs> and then we we, uh, we we were very careful about it. And everybody had this profound sort of respect for the time that you had with the admiral mm. um, and ensuring that the right information was delivered. Because it, in the end, you really have to help him or her um, think through, you know, where they're going. You know what they're saying and what they're doing in that schedule, uh, in you know across their engagements, and then you got to make sure that the 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 staff sort of that internal connection. There's enough time for them, and then there's also uh, enough time for him to engage with uh, people that he has to report to, and then enough time to travel with allies. I mean, we were actually gone about uh, two weeks out of every month, so um, that that was a challenge as well. I mean, the whole skill of being able to brief someone very senior in a very short amount of time is so important for really anyone working to somebody senior because, like you say, they have a very small window of opportunity for you to communicate the key ideas and also prepare for the kind of questions that are going to be asked. And if you're not ready for that, the time can kind of go straight away and you can also not get the right outcomes that you're wanting. So it is such an incredible skill. And I'm sure it's one you also employed when you moved from Honolulu to Washington, D.C to work at the Pentagon. You were in the office of the Secretary of Defense. I'm wondering, you know, working within the Washington, D.C. community and talking to people here at the Pentagon, what was that shift like personally and professionally from sort of living and working in the region, right at the cold face, as it were, to then going to the other side of the United States where views might not always be focused on the Indo-Pacific, they might be on Europe. Um, How did you have to adapt to that new environment? What were the main challenges? Yeah, so um, it's a fascinating thing because you come into the Pentagon where, you know, it was the aperture was big enough, and the the, um, the complexity just in Indo-Pacom was was uh, big enough, and you recognize the importance of the theater. But then you get into the Pentagon, and you're and I'm doing something quite similar, um, where I'm helping 
senior leaders uh, understand problems and, uh, and and make decisions. In some cases, managing time, uh, their time, etc. But I, you start to realize that wow, there's so much more going on here in the Indo-Pacific because it's not a uh, it's not so much a hot zone, you know, at the, at the time, of course, Central Command uh, in the, the Middle East was a lot more, there was a lot more activity, there was a lot more news, um, and so that tends to, when you think about a senior leader's time, such as the Secretary of Defense, or even the Undersecretary for Policy, or even Assistant Secretaries, they, they end up gravitating to that crisis, and then you want to look and at, help them look at and implement a longer-term strategy, and that becomes the challenge of the whole department. I did notice, um, you know, just between Indo-Pacific Command and the, the, the Pentagon, there was, you know, some, some dissonance and some um, differences of opinion. And, you know, when you're all the way out in Honolulu, you, you get a, uh, a group of folks and they begin to think, oh, those folks at the Pentagon, they just don't understand how important this is and why aren't we getting traction on this? And then you get to, as I did, I got to move right to the place where those those people were and now I am them, you know, mm. <laughs> and I start to realize. Feeling what it's wow, like on the other okay, side. Okay. So I, I actually felt that I, I played some role um, in trying to um, eliminate some of that dissonance and identify the areas of agreement and sort of create a little bit more understanding about why things were the way they uh, were the way they they were it's really good that we have folks like you to actually break down some of those barriers who have both sides of the coin something you've experienced and you can actually communicate so people have that understanding Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to provide some insights into your career experiences I mean looking at your resume, I think you should look older than you do. <laughs> so obviously being in the special forces hasn't aged you at all. Uh, it's done really well for you. But um, yeah, I think people will really appreciate you being able to share some of those personal experiences so they can understand what it would be like in that. And also then reflecting on your time at the Pentagon as well. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. And I'm, I'm so glad that you've, uh, you know, you've, you've come to the United States and uh, have spent some time time here again right yeah. I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> yeah um but uh but i i'm hoping that my work will bring me uh to australia i think uh, ever since my time at at aspie i've been kind of a uh, uh you know australia focused honorary you know. australian yeah, i'm an honorary I australian that. i even learned uh well i wouldn't say i learned i, I would say i played a lot of footy but uh I don't think I understand the game. <laughs> I've definitely been knocked around, and uh, we'll still and, let uh, you in. Yeah, that would Come be uh, the, that. That would be fantastic. So uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for for having me.